I'm Keith DeGreen. Thanks for joining me. Our topic today is the not-so-new world order. We're going to offer three examples of how the more things change, the more they stay the same. The tumbling Chinese economy, our ferocious and unsustainable national debt, and the winners and losers as countries across the world reach for a very old economic approach, mercantilism. Hmm. Now, on September 11, 1990, exactly 11 years before our infamous 9-11-2001, George H.W. Bush outlined before Congress his vision of what he called a new world order. This is what he said. We stand today at a unique and extraordinary moment. The crisis in the Persian Gulf, as grave as it is, also offers a rare opportunity to move toward an historic period of cooperation. Out of these troubled times, our fifth objective, a new world order, can emerge. A new era, freer from the threat of terror, stronger in the pursuit of justice, and more secure in the quest for peace. An era in which the nations of the world, East and West, North and South, can prosper and live in harmony. President Bush continued, A hundred generations have searched for this elusive path to peace, while a thousand wars raged across the span of human endeavor. Today, that new world is struggling to be born, a world quite different from the one we've known. A world where the rule of law supplants the rule of the jungle. A world in which nations recognize the shared responsibility for freedom and justice. A world where the strong respect the rights of the weak. Well, although the president's phrase, a new world order, had an Orwellian tinge to it, his sentiments were noble. While both economic and military peace are exemplary goals, in fact, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Indeed, the world keeps confirming what we already knew. For example, communism doesn't work. Well, duh. Just ask the 22% of Chinese young people who can't find work. 22% of them. So severe is youth unemployment in China that the Chinese government recently announced that they would no longer publish the numbers. Now, 22% is only the most recent number we had before the Chinese stopped reporting in August. Now, meanwhile, just ask the real estate developers there in China who have gone bust. Just ask the Chinese people who paid for apartments they will never receive. Just ask the local governments in China that are bankrupt. Just ask the investors and companies that are leaving China in droves. Just ask the rest of the world as it scrambles to find trading partners other than China. Here's something else we already know. Printing too much money leads to unsustainable debt. Just ask our Congress that already devotes 75% of our revenues of its discretionary spending to interest payments on the debt alone. That's 75% of what's left after defense 
and other non-discretionary programs such as Social Security, Medicare, and uh, Medicaid. That, now, incidentally, that's not, those aren't my numbers. That's according to the Office of Management and Bud Budget. And by 20, uh, uh, 2031, as I mentioned earlier, it's going to be 100% of all discretionary money has got to be used for um, the interest on our debt. And finally, here's another sign that the new world order is not so new. More and more countries, including the U.S., are embracing mercantilism. Now, mercantilism is an economic policy whereby a nation aims to maximize exports and minimize its imports. Now, originally adopted by European nations between 1500 and 1800, mercantilist nations implemented policies such as tariffs and subsidies to boost exports and make international imports more expensive. Indeed, mercantilism was the dominant economic system and method of protectionism uh, throughout what was known as the Age of Discovery, the 16th through the 18th, uh, into the 18th century. It became popular among the seafaring nations of Europe as they discovered the other nations of the world. Now, notable examples include Spain, Britain, France, and Portugal. Countries all wanted to export more than they imported in return, they would receive gold. Mercantilist economic policies rely on government intervention to restrict imports and protect domestic industries. Now, modern-day mercantilist policies include tariffs, subsidizing domestic industries, sound familiar, devaluation of currencies, and restrictions on the migration of foreign labor. It all sounds familiar right now, doesn't it? So today, let's take a deeper dive into all three of the symptoms that today's new world order is really just old wine and new bottles. Indeed, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Let's look first at China. Regarding China, after the communists took control in 1949, the people of China made a deal with the devil. First, they acquiesced when the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP, promised them an abundant socialist paradise that featured economic equality. <laughs> what they got was, for example, Mao's Great Leap Forward from 1958 to 1962, in which at least 45 million, that's 45 million people, died unnecessary deaths, including two and a half million who were tortured or summarily killed. The only thing that was distributed equally was poverty, hunger, fear, and death. But 16 years later, in 1978, the CCP offered another promise, and the Chinese people bought it. They promised a Chinese economic miracle, also known domestically as reform and opening up. It included a variety of economic reforms that they termed socialism with Chinese characteristics, also known as a socialist market economy. Launched by Premier Deng Xiaoping, the reforms were pursued by reformists within the CCP right up until Xi Jinping, China's current premier for life, I might add, took power in 2012. The reforms allowed, among other things, the establishment of private businesses, private home ownership, the pursuit of personal profit, 
and trade with the outside world, especially trade with the U.S. Thus enabled, the industrious Chinese people astounded the world. Their economy grew more rapidly than any other economy in history. It was breathtaking, and it looked as though the Chinese people were finally getting what they had bargained for, prosperity in exchange for the relinquishment of many fundamental political rights. But Xi Jinping is an ardent communist, and he makes no secret about that. Since taking control in 2012, she and his hardline communist comrades have ruthlessly reasserted state control over all aspects of Chinese life. He has devoted massive resources in the establishment of state-owned enterprises. He's clamped down on private enterprise and suppressed dissent at all levels. Until recently, China's debt-driven real estate sector accounted for about 30% of China's gross domestic product, its GDP. Before COVID, the value of China's real estate sector hit 50, excuse me, 50, yeah, $52 trillion, and that was in 2019. Now, that's about twice the size of the U.S. residential housing market. Total net real estate revenues in 2020 were about $1.4 trillion. But the massive debt driving China's real estate boom was justifiably of concern to the government, to uh, Xi and all of his uh, comrades. So they decided to tighten lending requirements and they raised interest rates. Now, some of this was necessary, but Xi and his comrades overdid it. Look, these communists are not exactly free market experts, to say the least. The result has been the default and bankruptcy of many of China's major real estate developers. We're talking hundreds of billions of defaults, of, of dollars in defaults. As these developers defaulted, the local governments that often loaned them money were also shortchanged. Now, many of them also face default or bankruptcy, even though they have the power to tax. They just cannot keep up. Hmm. But the ultimate victims were the people themselves. The vast majority of Chinese who attempt to buy a home are really buying a small apartment in a skinny high-rise that is part of a larger complex of skinny high-rises. You've seen, you've seen the pictures, no doubt. So millions of home buyers were typically required to post a 30% advanced deposit on the new construction of their apartment if they were buying a first home or a 60% deposit on a second home. As one apartment developer after another defaulted, one construction project after another also failed. The people who had paid deposits were left with empty apartment shelves. They did not yet own in, uh, these apartments, and now they are sitting in worthless towers, but they had their money sunk into it. And probably these towers will never be completed, many of them. Meanwhile, on the international stage, whether through its Belt and Roads Initiative or with respect to multinational or bilateral trade, Xi's government has lied, cheated, and stolen at every level, economically and politically. They've cheated on trade agreements. 
They've dumped goods into American and other markets at below cost to kill competition. They have practiced economic intimidation against smaller countries, and they have even, and intentionally, flooded America with the precursor chemicals for fentanyl, the drug that is killing more than 70,000 young Americans every year. More recently, Chinese authorities have raided the offices of American companies in China. In some cases, they have commandeered computers or demanded passwords, and they have severely limited the ability of American research firms to do basic corporate research on Chinese companies. The result? The world, quite naturally, if not belatedly, is turning away from this abuse, and the world turns away from China, the Chinese economy, the economy whose growth was once the envy of the world, while this is happening, that economy has begun to stall and even contracted. At least one in five, as I mentioned, people between the ages of 16 and 24 cannot find work. And few people have a social safety net for their health or in retirement. Now, China experienced a very, very brief quarterly uptick in growth after it ended its zero COVID lockdown strategy in December of 2022. But man, uh, the expected sustained growth just did not materialize. It just did not happen. Today, consumer spending in China has declined while savings rates have increased substantially. The Chinese are voting with their cash and saving for a rainy day. Well, Comrade Xi, it's raining. The question remains, just how long will the Chinese people accept this digressive path backward? Backward in the name of what? A bankrupt economic ideology, communism, that since its inception on the world stage has always, and I do mean always, required an oppressive authoritarian government to support it everywhere on earth that it's been implemented. An ideology that produces poverty, want, hunger, and fear. The problem is that Xi's government controls so many aspects of daily life in China, the internet, public debate, which is to say no real debate, and even movement. For example, how's this for Orwellian? It is estimated that China has 170 million closed circuit television cameras with another 400 million expected in the next three years. Many of these cameras have AI and facial recognition. According to one estimate, there are already about 4 million actual facial recognition cameras in China run by the government, with another 200 million such cameras planned by 2030. That's according to at least one estimate. But the Chinese know that there is relative safety in numbers. China ended its zero COVID lockdown policy, primarily in response to massive protests nationwide. But protesters can only get so far uh, in China. Just ask the few Chinese who survived the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989. You know, I once wrote a book on emerging market investing. It's very exciting when free enterprise triumphs over poverty in these countries. Various emerging markets include places like, and I'll just run through one list, Argentina, Brazil, Chile, Colombia, Mexico, Peru, 
The Czech Republic, Egypt, Greece, Hungary, Poland, uh, Qatar, Russia, Saudi Arabia, South Africa, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates. Oh, and of course, China, India, Indonesia, Korea, Malaysia, Pakistan, Philippines, Taiwan, and Thailand. Now, I've been to most of those countries, and I've been to China several times. I wish progress in them all was more consistent and more predictable, yet until recently, in China, there had been progress. So yes, China is an example of the old, new world order, an example of how the more things change, the more they stay the same. Boneheaded people in power trying to crush the kind of initiative um, and incentives that create prosperity. Communism simply does not work. But one thing I think we can predict is that if Xi and his cronies want to retain power long term, they had better renew the promise and reality of free enterprise in their country. If they don't, one way or the other, the people of China may do it for them. Next on our agenda, to illustrate how the more things change, the more they stay the same. To illustrate the new world order is just the old new world order is this simple truism. If you borrow too much money, you are going to have serious trouble paying it back. If you're a government that borrows too much money, all your citizens will pay the price, not just in interest on that debt, but quite possibly with their entire financial futures. Witness our current situation. Democrats and Republicans alike have contributed to our public debt. But make no mistake, the amount of debt incurred during the last year of the Trump administration at the outbreak of COVID and then during the first two years of the Biden administration has been absolutely breathtaking. In 2020, during the final year of the Trump administration, and during the height of COVID, our federal deficit was $3.1 trillion. That's just the deficit. In 2021, although the COVID threat had begun to subside, the budget deficit during Biden's first year in office was $2.8 trillion. And in fiscal 2022, with the economy back to healthy, nearly full steam and tax revenues coming in and so on, um, the Biden deficit was $1.4 trillion. Meanwhile, the Congressional Budget Office uh, projects that our budget deficit during fiscal 2023 will be $1.5 trillion. And in 2024, the budget deficit is projected to rise to $1.8 trillion. Therefore, President Biden will own about $7.5 trillion of accumulated debt during his first, and frankly, I do hope only, four years in office. Now, currently, our national debt stands at around $33 trillion. And that does not include the projected $1.8 trillion we're going to add to that debt during Uncle Joe's final year in office. But what does that mean for each American? Our public debt per American citizen totals nearly $98,000. More importantly, it totals about $254,000 per American taxpayer. In 1960, our federal debt to GDP 
ratio was uh, 53%. By 1980, it had dropped to 35% of GDP. And, and by 2000, though, it had begun to climb back to 57% of GDP. Today, our federal debt, now remember, a deficit is what you incur when you're upside down in a year. The debt is all the accumulated deficits put together. Our federal debt now totals 119% of our nation's annual gross domestic product, its GDP. The interest expense alone on our national debt is now approaching $1 trillion per year, especially as interest rates increase. Incidentally, this year we, our federal government, will spend the following amounts on non-discretionary items. Ready for this? More than $1.66 trillion on Medicare and Medicaid. This is just in one year. $1.3 trillion on Social Security and $791 billion on national defense. Now, I encourage you to watch my recent two-part interview with Congressman David Schweikert regarding the unsustainable cost of Medicare and Medicaid. Now, our government issues various forms of debt to cover its debts, T-bills, T-notes, and bonds. A T-bill has a maturity of one year or less, a T-note has a maturity of from two to 10 years, and government bonds have maturities of 10 years or more. For some time now, shorter maturity T-bills have paid more than government Long, longer-term government bonds. And this is called an inverted yield curve, and it's often a harbinger of recession. Now, the Federal Reserve hopes that it can engineer a soft landing, you've probably heard the phrase, of the economy. But that jury is still out, to say the least. Here's the key. According to the Wall Street Journal, and I'm going to quote liberally from the uh, Wall Street Journal in, during this presentation, I happened to have uh, encountered a couple of really good articles by them right on, right on point here. According to the Wall Street Journal, the Congressional Budget Office forecasts that this year interest on the debt will equal about three quarters of discretionary non-defense spending, and that by 2031, as I mentioned earlier, it will consume all discretionary spending without either reductions in non-discretionary spending or without tax increases, that's what's going to happen. Well, you know the liberals in Washington are clamor for tax increases. Uh, so don't get me started. We simply will not have the money to pay the interest, just the interest on our national debt. We will begin to issue new debt merely to cover the interest on our old debt. And that is something that to some extent we are already doing. It's sort of like rolling from uh, one credit card to another, at least until the banks shut you down. Now, of course, we can, we must attempt to grow our way out of this dilemma by doing all we can to accelerate the growth of our economy. A rapidly growing economy produces more tax revenues, but even, even if we grow the economy rapidly, increased tax revenues will do little good if Congress, the president, simply spend that money as it arrives. More regulations, more red tape, 
and having a government that picks winners and losers is not the path toward growth. Medicare, Social Security, and of course, interest are legally non-negotiable. Military spending isn't really optional either. I'd like to see more of it. I know many of you would too. No, if it's well and truly spent. Now, no wonder the federal government is sometimes described as an insurance company with an army. Yet the CBO, Congressional Budget Office forecast, might actually be too optimistic. It envisions the net interest rate paid on our debt barely topping 3% in coming years, even though short-term bills and notes already yield close to 5% today. Consider that around 70% of treasuries held by private investors. 70% of the, our government's debt must be rolled over within five years because these notes and bills are expiring. If we add just one percentage point to the average interest rate in the CBO's forecast and kept every other number unchanged, that would result in an additional $3.5 trillion in federal debt by 2033, 10 years from now. The government's annual interest bill alone would then be about $2 trillion every single year. Now, for perspective, for perspective, individual income taxes are set to bring in only about $2.5 trillion this year total. Just letting rates rise high enough to attract more and more of the world's savings might work for a while, but not without crushing the stock and housing markets. Or the Fed could step in and buy enough bonds to lower rates, rekindling inflation and depressing real returns on bonds. Meanwhile, the more we owe, the less wiggle room our government has for other priorities, whether it's the ability to uh, bail out banks or underwrite life-saving vaccines, uh, whether it's uh, real infrastructure improvements, all the different things uh, that we know government needs to be spending money on. So all that stuff would be curtailed. So the new economy envisioned by progressives in academia, in the Obama administration, and now in the Biden administration was, they said, immune from debt. Deficits didn't matter, they said. The government can retain its credit rating and maintain its reputation for full faith and credit regardless, they said. In fairness, the US dollar is not in danger of losing its status as the world's reserve currency, despite rumblings that the, B, uh, that the BRIC nations, Brazil, Russia, India, and China, uh, might attempt a currency backed by gold. That's gonna spin out of control real quick for a variety of reasons. As I said earlier, we are the cleanest dirty shirt in the pile. However, recently, Fitch Rating Services did downgrade US government debt. That's the first time since 2011. And today, the numbers, as we've just explained, are way, way worse than they were in 2011. Our government is not immune from the impact of too much debt. We can lose our credit reputation, and deficits can destroy the value of the dollar, destroy the credibility of our nation, and destroy the retirements and financial security of Americans. Yes, the old, new world order strikes again. Yep, the more things change, the more they stay the same. One final example on 
how the new world order is really the old new world order. In this case, a very old new world order. Mercantilism. Hmm. I mentioned earlier that many nations are embracing a modern version of a very old concept, mercantilism. Again, mercantilist economy uh, rely on government intervention to restrict imports and protect domestic industries. Modern-day mercantilist policies include tariffs, subsidizing domestic industries, devaluation of currencies, and restrictions on the migration of foreign labor. Now, for decades, America's ideal of an industrial policy was to have no policy at all. Instead, we believed, we trusted, as many of us still believe, that competitive free markets create the best industrial policy of all. One based on supply and demand. However, the size and power of China's industrial power, its championing of its, what it calls its national champions, that's what they call their state-owned uh, state enterprises, also known as SOEs. Uh, that's forced the hand of a world now intent on reducing its reliance on that increasingly combative government. Now, we can make a strong argument that subsidies to favored industries violate the spirit of free enterprise and of our incredibly efficient market-driven economy, an economy that has served us so well for nearly 250 years. We can also effectively argue that subsidies obviously cost taxpayers money. Now, we can make both of those arguments, to which policymakers, both conservative and liberal alike, may reply that private companies simply lack the financial strength to compete against government-sponsored businesses that have comparatively unlimited resources because governments can tax. They can argue that if government-sponsored companies compete against our companies, it is reasonable to subsidize our companies to offset the deep pocket advantage of other governments. They can also argue that while subsidies cost taxpayers in the short term, subsidies that promote construction and jobs will generate payroll and corporate tax revenues for years to come, not just from the company being subsidized, but from all the businesses with which that company and its employees buy goods and services. Of course, that money would have been deployed anyway in a free market economy perhaps, though, not into the favored co uh, companies that uh, people in Washington pick as the winners against the losers who don't get any money. Now, consider this recent explanation by the Wall Street Journal. And again, I'm going to quote liberally from uh, this particular article uh, because it was just spot on point, and I congratulate the Journal for that. Uh, the world's biggest economies are offering huge subsidies in a cutthroat race to win the industries of the future. The losers are all the countries that cannot pay up. New tax credits for manufacturing batteries, solar power, equipment, and other green technology are drawing a flood of capital to the United States. The European Union is trying to respond with its own green energy support package. Japan has announced plans for $150 billion of borrowing to finance a wave of investment in green technology there. All of them are working to become less dependent on China, which has a big lead in areas including batteries and the minerals to make them. 
Now, some smaller players are getting left behind. Many are nimble economies that were on the rise during decades of the free, uh, of free trade. But now they're at a disadvantage in a new era of aggressively uh, implementing industrial policy. Hmm. Nations such as the UK and Singapore, for example, lack the scale to compete against the biggest economic blocks in offering subsidies. You know, emerging markets such as Indonesia, which had hoped to use its natural resources to climb the economic ladder, are also threatened by the shift. Now, for example, Intel has been offered $11 billion in subsidies from the German government to build two semiconductor plants there in what Prime Minister Olaf Sch uh, Scholz called the largest foreign direct investment in German history. The pledged government financing is substantially more than the annual, annual budget of Singapore's Ministry of Trade and Industry. Similarly, many tech companies that began life in the UK are moving to, for example, South Korea and the US. The US, which is offering $370 billion in incentives and funding for clean energy as part of the Inflation Reduction Act, is seeing a windfall of foreign investment. German, and it's not, you know, you pick a, uh, if Washington says, oh, we like that little green energy company, so here's a billion dollars, go, go for it. Even if that green energy company has never made a dime, even if they uh, will never make any money, because so many of them fail, nevertheless, if the federal government gives them a billion dollars in tax credits, well, if they don't have taxes to pay because they don't make any money, it's not going to help them, right? Wrong. Because they can sell those tax credits. There's a market for the tax credits. So a company that's in, say, the 25% effective tax rate um, for taxes, making whole piles of money, can come in and offer 125 15 even 20% to the company that's never going to make any money. And they can pocket that money. Uh, it, it's... it's uh, don't get me started. Anyway, that, so it creates a whole market of people trading uh, tax credits. Hmm. You know, German car maker BMW uh, just broke ground for a new battery plant in South Carolina. South Korean firms, Hyundai and LG, announced a $4.3 billion battery plant in Georgia. Panasonic of Japan is building a plant in Kansas. These subsidies mark a departure from the economic integration that for decades broke down barriers to trade and investment between countries, especially helping smaller countries and emerging countries. Globalization transformed uh, once poor countries such as South Korea and Taiwan into uh, high-tech developed economies lifting hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. Washington consumers got an abundance of affordable consumer goods and a higher standard of living. Technological advances and new management ideas also moved more freely between countries, along with goods and financial resources. But the model also had steep costs. 
once thriving communities in the U.S. You know, I grew up in uh, Cleveland area, a place called Chagrin Falls, Ohio, and it's right in the in the Rust Belt. And those of us who grew up in that environment and ultimately moved uh, to pursue economic opportunity elsewhere. I moved from Ohio to, to Phoenix way back in the 1970s. Um, we saw it firsthand. We saw town after town after town just uh, being gutted because so many communities uh, lost businesses that could no longer compete with foreign competition. So these once thriving communities in the US and in Western Europe were hollowed out as manufacturing jobs moved to Asia or um, some of the former Soviet states. You know, some, econom uh, some economies faced destabilizing bouts of capital flight as foreign money flooded in and out. But now, unwinding that global integ integration, the modern day version of mercantilism puts smaller developing economies uh, at greater risk because they especially need access to global markets if they're to trade their way to greater prosperity. You know, Europe and the U.S. and China are in a subsidy competition, and the losers in that competition are poorer economies with less fiscal resources. Now, for example, Indonesia may be collateral damage, which is really a shame because, number one, because of its strategic location and because it's a democracy. You know, it has ambitions to parlay its abundant nickel resources into a world-leading battery industry. But U.S. rules put in place as part of the spectacularly incorrectly and poorly named Inflation Reduction Act those rules deny subsidies for EV batteries that contain large amounts of minerals from nations that are not American free trade partners. Well, currently, Indonesia does not qualify. Now, I certainly hope that the Biden administration or the next administration will take a really hard look at that situation. We need Indonesia as a, as a friend, as a strategic location, large, large country uh, in terms of population. I think it's third or fourth most popular country in the world. A lot, of, a lot of islands, but it's a cool place. And we want to embrace friendship with them and, and, and give them a shot here at, um, at being able to compete. So even if we pursue national industrial policies, something that's ultimately of questionable merit, we need to find ways to bring our allies and especially the world's democracies along with us. Now, as a leader in the subsidy race, the U.S. is experiencing an investment boom. The U.S. took in about 22% of global foreign direct investment last year, making it the world's top recipient. That's according to United Nations data. Now, that is significantly higher than the 13% it got in 2019 pre-pandemic. In the U.S., spending on construction related to manufacturing rose 76% in May compared with a year earlier to a seasonally adjusted annual rate of $194 billion. That's big money, that's big money. And that's, that's a, kind of the upside of some of this. Now, another example, one green energy Australian company named Fortescue, uh, Fortescue Future Industries. It's looking for a US location because it estimates that our subsidies 
could knock up to 60%, not 16, but 60% off their project's price tag. Good Lord. Me, and of course, Australia's, they're, they're our friends. And yet, this is what's happening due to these mercantilist uh, industrial policy policies. Meanwhile, the European Union is preparing its own support package, and they're relaxing limits on subsidies that member countries can give industry. Now, by 2030, the EU wants 40% of the key technologies needed for the green transition to be manufactured in the bloc, including solar equipment, a sector currently dominated by China, and wind, turbines, and batteries. And the U.S. battery production pipeline, which measures capacity from projects in the works, that pipeline here in the U.S. has jumped 67% since the Inflation Reduction Act was announced. That's huge. But as I say, some countries are left out. Now, for example, the shift in global trade comes at a particularly awkward time for the United Kingdom, which has been struggling to chart a new course in the global economy after leaving the European Union in 2020, which meant it no longer had easy access to its uh, giant single market there in the uh, European Union. Well, what Brexit, when Brexit, Brexit was passed in 2016, the U.S. should have promptly entered into bilateral trade agreements with our oldest and most reliable ally. It should have been instantaneous, but we didn't. We have yet to do so. Now, predictably, there are calls within the UK for the country to establish its own industrial strategy. And not only Indonesia, but also Zimbabwe have put in place export restrictions on minerals such as nickel, bauxite, lithium, uh, along with requirements that foreign companies build processing facilities in the country as a condition for exporting uh, their, their minerals. Hmm. We see also how smaller economies are also joining the rush, therefore, uh, to establish industrial policies of their own. So remember our definition of mercantile, mercantilism. Mercantilist economic policies rely on government intervention to restrict imports and protect domestic industries. Modern-day mercantilist policy include tariffs, subsidizing domestic industries, devaluation of currencies, and restrictions on the migration of foreign labor. Yes, yes, absolutely. Welcome to yesterday. Welcome to the 1600s. Did I mention that the more things change, the more they stay the same? Hmm. Did I mention that the new world order is once again the old new world order? So there you have it. Just three examples of how new is old and old is new once again. First, the failure of Chinese, uh, China's ideologues to push their economy forward while imposing uh, failed communist policies. Another confirmation that communism just does not work. Second, an example of how the expansion of our national debt puts our nation in jeopardy and provides compelling evidence that no one is immune from the horrendous impact of too much debt. And finally, 
the reversion to old world mercantilism by even the most ardently capitalist countries as they combat mercantilist abuses by China and others. You know, as an investment advisor, I would always tell my clients that we invest in the world as we find it, and that there is always money to be made out there somewhere. That hasn't changed either. So keep the faith. Yes, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Welcome to the old new world order. I am Keith DeGreen, and this is As I See It.